0: Welcome to The Balance Sheet, where you rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. It wasn't that long ago that the word perma-crisis entered our collective vocabulary. The pace of change has not let up since. Technology, new work models, and sustainability are key drivers in business and the workplace. So where does all this leave business leaders, and managers. Today's guest will help us with strategies and ways to uh, adapt in this changing work landscape. Professor Jennifer Howard Grenville is the Diageo Professor of Organizational Studies. She's particularly interested in how businesses transform themselves for sustainability, organizational culture, identity, and the future of work. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thank you so much, Conrad. It's wonderful to be here and um, delighted to join all of your guests.
0: So, Jennifer, you recently co-wrote an article uh, on HBR about the future of work. Uh, in there, you and your co-author talked about the who, the what and why of work. Can you tell us what does, do those three things mean in 2024?
1: sure um maybe before i say that um why did we write this article we were Mm -hmm. partly motivated by the observation that the future of work as you pointed out those three words we tend to use them a lot but we tend to talk about different things so if you ask 12 people what the future of work might mean you could get 13 or 14 different answers and the other thing that we observed was as you also pointed out the future of work definition or label or our conception of what it could mean has shifted over time so when you look at articles that are written prior to the pandemic almost always those three words future of work is associated with technology shifts which we might remind ourselves were less profound than than they are right now what laura and i started to observe was that actually as people use the terms future of work after the pandemic or through the pandemic it increasingly meant worker well-being it meant um, individual needs in the workplace also questions of hybrid work and what we came to realize is not only is our language around future of work changing over time it's also quite diverse in the labels we give it because obviously the future of work post gpt post generative ai really does involve profound questions about technology as well so we chose to try to articulate for ourselves and potentially for others, ideally for others, um, the many different meanings that are already packed into future of work. So that's why we felt the who, the what, and the why were ways to start to sort of untease. These many aspects of future work. So we don't want to simplify it and say it's only these three things or that these three three things are separate, but it helped us to think through what we say the future of workers. So the who, it's you and I, it's individuals, it's our listeners who are grappling with how am I contributing to my organization? What does my work, my job, my career look like now and in the future? What do I want? What are the many things that I have to give and how are organizations going to support that? Um, The what of work. So we call this the future of working, where we're really looking at the organizational level questions around job roles, tasks, how are jobs changing? in this new world that is beset by the kinds of things that you mentioned. So fundamentally new technologies, new ways of interacting and communicating, the um, evidence that we can work from home, that you and I are working right now as are our colleagues and we're all joined collectively online and this is completely normal, whereas it wouldn't have been five years ago. So the ways in which work is carried out at an organizational level is changing and we call that the what of work. Um, and then finally, the why of work. We talk about that as the future of work itself. And we just need to remind ourselves that most of us work in formal organizations. Um, we have a conception that there is a workplace such as an office. We have a conception of there is a team of people that we interact with and a set of considerations that our organizations are concerned with, which is not just producing product or service and meeting organizational goals and being efficient and effective and you know addressing customer needs it's also doing things that meet regulatory requirements doing things that um, align with what is a vastly changing what we might call social contract to operate so are we operating sustainably um, in terms of environmental social and governance factors so the why we're working um, and what it means to work what work means what it gives to the world what it takes from the world and how it operates in balance with the environment and societies and human needs is also changing rapidly around us so we break it down to the who the what and the why of work mostly because we felt like all of those components are important they're distinct but they're also related as we say in the article
0: And just a reminder to the viewers, uh, if you have any questions for Jennifer, please put them in the comments, and, uh, or you want to share some of your own experiences. Jennifer, you mentioned that these are not, I mean, you've, you've simply tried to uh, make it easier to understand with the who, what, and why, but how are they interconnected, and are there tensions between those three uh, areas?
1: Absolutely. I mean, what was interesting is Laura and I, and by the way, Laura Empson is my co-author and she is a fellow of the Cambridge Judge Business School and a professor at Bayes Business School in London. She's a micro-scholar. She's much more concerned about historically questions of leadership. Um, And I'm more of a meso and macro-scholar, as we might call. I'm concerned with questions, as you said, at the organizational level around culture, identity, change, but also how that interacts with the societal level around sustainability and when we came together we found that we use different language um, but had many, many of the same concerns. And one of the ways that I like to think is in terms of systems. But she also thinks about collectives in different ways. So the notion of collective leadership is something she's explored and actually developed in the past. So when we came together, we started talking about, yes, indeed, we can parse out the future of work as the who, the what, and the why. But we need to understand that work as anything is part of a complex interdependent system. So what. You you and I might experience as our frustrations with work or our questioning of whether we're going to align with organizational values in the future might be largely conditioned by macroeconomic conditions. For example, what are the opportunities to do different work? What are the ways in which our values might have changed post-pandemic, which was a huge global shock? What are the ways that those might then further evolve as we recognize that there are cost of living crises, that there are significant shifts going on at the macro level due to geopolitical factors, due to wars. Um, And so these shifts in what work is, why it why it looks as it looks, how it's configuring itself, and how that presents itself to the opportunities we might read in as individuals. That's an example of the interconnection. So when we're talking about mental well-being at work, we can't ignore the fact that people are stressed by the cost of living crisis. So we need to start to understand that these things aren't just one level, you know, focus on mental well-being and everything will be fine, or sustainability issues if you're hiring new workers if you're recruiting young people into new organizational roles or even the same organizational roles how do you think about giving them opportunities that will meet their aspirations their needs their values while also contributing to what the organization needs in an ai enabled environment um, And one of the things that we also point out is when you think about these systems and interconnections or in a systems way that takes account of these interconnections, it gets a little overwhelming sometimes, and we can't predict what's going to happen next. But as we observe the world in the last four or five years, we notice that things ripple very rapidly, change very rapidly. And so that's what leads us to say, we need a different way of even conceiving of our capacity to predict um, and certainly our capacity to control. But that doesn't mean we give up the agency. That doesn't mean we just sit back and let it happen to us. The future of work we very strongly feel is actually ours to create, but we need to create it in a way that's mindful of all of these interconnections.
0: We've got a few audience questions, but before we get to them, I wanted to ask you, that you, you mentioned this thing about co- collective and agency. Um, mm-hmm. And in your article, you do write about collective leadership inside, we that we, people who are work in the workplace, have more agency than we think we have. Um, do you still believe that when we see all these mass layoffs, uh, companies are shutting down because the economy is slowing, and even AI possibly taking over some of the jobs or uh, roles in the workplace.
1: Absolutely. I mean, those things are very concerning and individual workers often feel that they don't have agency. And I think when we say we have more agency than we think, the we that Laura and I refer to in the article is actually the collective we. It's the top leadership of organizations. It's middle managers of organizations and its employees and organizations and what we're really trying to urge because it serves nobody if there's mass layoffs that are overreactions in some cases to changes in ai i was reminded quite recently talking to a senior partner in um, in a professional service firm who said you know we've had a lot of technological changes especially digital technology changes over the year We tend to overpredict in the short term what their impact will be, yet underpredict in the long term what their impact is. And I think that's really prescient. I'm not saying AI is not changing things. I think there's a lot of hype and concern about AI. And I think organizations that really take this notion of the collective we and how can we together work. Yes, we may need to recast what jobs look like. Some jobs will be easier, more pleasant, and and more creative uh, with the use and supports of AI. But nobody should be making those decisions alone. So top leadership doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen with the work, tasks, and roles. And we know this from a great deal of organizational scholarship on how new technologies are adopted. They're never quite adopted as we think they might be. So top leadership, middle management, and employees need to work together to experiment with and learn about the changes that will actually take hold, that will actually be important um, to support people in job roles that are AI-enabled. Doesn't mean that some jobs may shift considerably, but I think that's also where organizations that are really thinking about the long-term and the short-term, thinking about the uncertainty and thinking about the fact that we're in this really nascent stage, especially in relation to AI, um, need to be mindful about how they're reacting and not overreact and think forward and plan. So the we might not mean we as workers, but I think that we really want to emphasize the we means we as a collective, as a mindful collective, bringing in all of those experiences and voices to the extent possible.
0: Obviously, one of the biggest examples of how technology changed the way we work was is remote working or working from home. And that was very much imposed on us from the pandemic. So Debasis asks, um, what is the biggest due diligence concern for businesses that may be a barrier to remote work? So I'm guessing he's asking, how can businesses or leaders and business leaders ensure that work gets done when work is done remotely?
1: Yeah, um, and I think uh, I, predicting the biggest due diligence concern might be, might be a challenge, but absolutely, I think remote work, one of, one of the real questions, that was raised early on during the pandemic was are people more productive less productive happier you know have better well-being overall as individuals as a result of remote work or not that question has been answered in lots of different ways and i think the short point is the answer is it depends right it really depends on the work itself individual people so the who and the what (laughs) and what are you trying to achieve with that work the why of work um i do think that uh these barriers to remote work in terms of concerns about you know absolutely from the organization's point of view if an employee is working remotely there's no ability to to um uh, to track to measure and not in a creepy monitoring (laughs) real-time kind of way but to evaluate their productivity and their performance in a way that is meaningful you know the fear that they might be be doing another job at the same time or that kind of thing absolutely should be key concerns for organizations. Again, as an organizational scholar who's been in the field for 20 plus years, um, some of these are not at all new problems. We've always had, you know, from the moment people entered a factory, these tensions between worker autonomy versus management control and different ways of evaluating how we manage that tension. So way back to the Industrial Revolution, you know, the assumption was people were like machines. They had to do a small task and they had to do it efficiently and quickly. And then, you know, they didn't, you know, check your brains at the door. Nothing else mattered. And managers walked around with stopwatches to make, people were, make sure people were meeting their productivity goals. um, We moved through whole different eras of regarding that actually workers shouldn't be treated in the sort of, you know, uh, stick way. We needed carrots as well, right? We needed to inspire workers. We needed to see that they're intrinsically motivated by things. And we needed to craft jobs and roles that actually brought that out in people. And I think you'll see now we have still a variety of mechanisms, carrots and sticks, management controls that are quote, imposed upon workers, and also ways that we can design jobs, roles, and indeed monitoring, evaluation, and performance metrics that bring out the best in workers. And so I think the key question for organizations right now is how do we make sure workers aren't doing the wrong thing? It's how do we notice that we've got technology, we've got remote work, we've got all these shifts, how do we renegotiate this balance between autonomy and control in a way that serves organizations? And their employees best, and just noticing that that balance has—it's been a t- tension throughout history since we moved work from agriculture to industry, um, and it's been a tension that has to be renegotiated depending on the who, the what, and the why of work. So, um, Debasis, I, I hope that gets at some of your of your questions. There's no single easy answer, though.
0: And of course, a lot of this discussion about remote work, you know. It ignores the vast majority of people who can't work remotely, right? The delivery Absolutely. workers or the people in a factory. And as you say, your uh, your 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 appeal to leaders and businesses is to think more holistically about workers, whether it's white collar or people in you know, like I said, the delivery workers, etc. We have a question yep. from uh, Areen: Who asks, "Will the future of work um, have an?" Imp- Will there be an impact of technology on traditional social relationships that currently exist at work?
1: Now, um, Aaron, I'm not sure I fully understand your question, so um, so come back if I'm not going on the on the right track here. Um, well, the short answer is yes, the future of work absolutely needs to explore the impact of technology on all sorts of things, including traditional social relationships. And, and what I... Int- interpret by that is much of the time at work people are historically face-to-face right they're co-located now Conrad your point taken absolutely there are people who have worked independently for decades um, you know in terms of their in their delivery van for eight hours a day and they're not interacting face-to-face with that many people Um, or their interaction is brief. Um, There are software developers and coders who have worked remotely for long before the pandemic. But if we think of traditional professional office environments where there was actually a face-to-face component, um, we can absolutely expect and have seen that working remotely completely reconfigures the the face-to-face, in-person relationships that people are able to get. One of the key concerns, and it's been um born out one of the key concerns was that coming out of the pandemic uh people who joined organizations particularly junior members who didn't have um relationships established face-to-face prior to working online had a harder time um connecting learning learning what the work really entailed there were a huge amount of efforts to help people come up to speed to support their work to have them in virtual coffee chats but in some ways nothing really um, matches sort of face-to-face observing how work gets done, observing how senior people in the organization interact with each other, um, running into, bumping into people in 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 a, in a uh, the hallway. Um, I think many of us know that it's the the two minutes before and the two minutes after a meeting in a conference room that a lot of side conversations go on. So regardless of whether it's people who have established relationships at work or particularly people who are new who need to be mentored who need to understand a lot of the informal rules that um, that configure the way work gets done those things are hard to replicate in my view with technology now I might be old-fashioned I am not a digital native I'm too old to be um, I have children who are and I see that actually their ways of interaction um, of interacting and of working are at peace with um, you know online and offline interactions. I will also say, however, um, they do notice the impact of, you know, three days a week they're expected to be in the office, the other two they're working from home, and they do uh, really want to be mentored, really want to see the ways in which organizations work informally, which is essentially the cultural pieces, which is a huge concern of mine. So, um, I'm a little bit worried uh, about the social relationships um, that, and through that lens, Aaron. And I think we all should be. And I think this is an area where it's a prime example of we get to articulate what the needs are, what's working, what's not working, and find a balance again. Um, because I think most people don't want to be in a traditional office five days a week, but they do want to advance with their careers and they do want to support their organization's goals.
0: Yes, and uh, Aaron, just... Uh... Replied that working remotely has reconfigured us, and sometimes we're missing out on the motivation that we, and energy that we draw from colleagues, and the opportunity to pick up on tacit knowledge, which uh, we used to do when we we're all in the office, and that kind of implied form sort of mentoring that comes about. Yeah.
1: Thank you, you Erin. Yeah. Ask, ask for it if you're not getting it or, you know, speak up. I think this is one thing, sorry, Cameron, didn't mean to cut you off. In in the article, we do say, you know, it's interesting. There are some organizations including in very, very staid traditional industries. I can't name them, but that we've been really inspired by where uh, leadership has basically noticed that new people in the workforce have perspectives to offer um, on societal issues or on their own preferred ways of working and rather than just saying okay you know join together be part of a support group have a chat have a lunch um, this organization in particular said come up with some some challenges for us some things that we could do differently and not just present those to senior leadership Um, they actually got to sit in on strategy sessions they get to sit in on strategy sessions they get assigned a strategic uh, sorry a senior leader as a mentor and they get, get to make those things happen and experiment with how they could happen within the organization so when people speak up about what they need hopefully their organizations will not just listen but they'll also support the kind of change that makes them again long-term ready for this future mm.
0: we now we have another question this is from Saba. and you know she says sabah asked um, what about redundancy and how should leadership deal with this because mm-hmm. um No matter how well you run a company, at some point, maybe you're forced by economic circumstances to let people go.
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, and I think uh, the past of work has a lot of redundancy, um, has a lot of layoffs, has a lot of of change. And that is an inevitable part of um, organizational life. And I think also when we look at this question of the macro shifts, um, you know, Uh, the global financial crisis for example huge huge impact that rippled through and absolutely fundamentally reshaped the work that some people were able to do changed lives completely Um, and so we need to remember that it's not just the future that holds these tensions it's also the past Uh, so they are to some degree part of how organizations adjust to the macro shifts ride out the technological changes for better or for worse um, and I think the the, the notion that um, leadership should deal with it in a way that is mindful of, of how people can contribute, it might not be in their organization. So I think many, many organizations have a vision of when they need to announce job cuts. Um, how do you support those workers to be skilled um, and be connected to other job opportunities? Um, I think you know, my interest also is in sustainability, and we look at some massive. You know, this is a this is a, both a scary time and an extraordinarily exciting time in the coming decades. We will completely rewire um, energy um, energy infrastructure. We have to, and that is going to cause massive shifts, especially in some of the traditional energy industries. And so, the question becomes not, you know, how do we best lay off a whole segment of people it's how do we actually transform the work so we can create fair just equitable jobs that support the energy transition because boy do we need those too so long-term perspective macro term perspective it might not be our organization that provides those jobs in the future but it is someone and somewhere and so i think working in partnership um, outside the organization can also be one of the supports there so i would encourage leadership to think in terms of the bigger systems don't just look at the next three months or what the immediate demands are, make yourself and your employees future ready, which means not just the next three years. It, you know, how do you create an organization that is the right organization for the next decade?
0: Great, and you know, you mentioned uh, sustainability, which is obviously a key driving force for the world for businesses, and it's going to be with us pretty much for the next few decades, if, if not forever. But I think it sounds also that organizations increasingly come into conflict sometimes with their own employees when it comes to actions versus uh, what what is put on the, uh, ab- above the photocopier or the water cooler in terms of their values and their statements of purpose. I'm thinking how some of these tech employees protested against their companies working for the U.S. military and what some companies were saying they were doing in the, in the wake of uh, Black Lives Matter, but actually what they did so it's such a fraught conversation and do you think companies should just stay clear from all of these taking position from all of these societal issues
1: yeah this is a great example i think of what we talk about in the article is the why of work and the future of work itself um you know i did start studying sustainability way before it was cool and way before it was actually called sustainability we called it environmental management back then um and we just look at the last 20 years especially massive massive shift in what's expected of organizations so it used to be fine that you complied with legal requirements it's now not fine right and the advent of social media again a technological shift but also shifts in societal expectations what do we want from companies it's not okay if they just comply with the law they're increasingly asked to take positions on things to have a, a you know essentially a, a moral stance on you know doing business with certain countries etc., um, and I think that creates a whole lot of challenges that organizations and leaders are dealing with in different ways. Here I go back to you know we just need to recognize that all of these societal shifts are fundamentally cultural, and I mean that at the level of of what are the norms in society that we collectively not completely align on but we collectively generally agree to how do we agree about how we treat ourselves and each other how do we agree about what good business looks like we are in a moment occasioned by you know crises around the planet due to climate change and other you know biodiversity shifts etc the the real recognition that the planet can not support business as usual as they would been executing it since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Um, increasing geopolitical conflict, some of which is linked to in, in a systemic way, you know, the provision of energy and materials, not all. Um, increasing shifts in, obviously, technology and AI that are both making things potentially more uncertain, more difficult, but also enabling a whole lot of other things. So when we add all of that together, we recognize that actually, um, you know, the, the we're in this huge sort of turn as a society. And I didn't even mention the pandemic. Coming out of the pandemic, all the things that have been exposed about our interconnectedness, right? About our interconnectedness with nature, about our shared vulnerability, but also about our need to sort of retreat and protect our regions, our nations. So these are fun fundamental things that are going on and that have been accelerated, I think, in the last five years. Um, The answer is not that we can predict or sort them out each each one individually. The answer lies in recognizing that we as societies do adjust. We adjust our norms. We adjust what's normal. But we're in this messy middle right now where everything is churning a lot. So it's actually quite normal culturally for things to be unsettled as uh, sociologist and Swidler would say, when we're not just organizational cultures, but macro culture is shifting. Um, unsettled moments are moments when you see much more sort of ideological tussles coming to the foreground. So when we talk about ESG, and then we talk about the anti-ESG agenda or the anti-woke agenda, that is actually normal when we're in times of intense societal change. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult, and it might play out, as you noted, between employees and management, but it's actually part of how we, as societies, achieve change and sort of recreate the new normal. So I think there's two things that are important here. One is recognizing this is part of that macro shift that we're all working our way through. The tensions, the articulations, we need to understand those at some point, I believe, given past cultural shifts it will settle right it will settle but we're in the middle of the unsettled part right now um and the second piece i'm just going to mention briefly you know corporations organizations need to be really careful when they're talking about their position on things i think they don't have a choice right now and that's what makes it particularly difficult especially potentially for leadership who's grown up in another kind of environment where they could stay silent on social issues Um, they don't have a choice but on the other hand It needs to be authentic. So there's a lot of talk around purpose right now. And anyone who does anything to do with purpose in an organization, I would just strongly encourage you to say purpose needs to be authentic to who you are. It needs to be credible because immediately, as you point out, if it's not credible, if it's not aligned where employees and outsiders think you stand as an organization, it's not going to fly. And um, we're in a very, very critical time as well around greenwashing and other forms of washing. And so I think there's real things that leaders need to pay attention to right now, which is how can we address the issues, answer the questions that are being asked of us in a way that's authentic, admit that we may not have all the answers and actually we shouldn't because we're still working through many of even what the right questions are, let alone what, what the right answers are, but show that you're on a path that is credible towards actually understanding your role on these issues and addressing them. Um, If somebody comes out and says, we've solved it all now, I would be very, very skeptical of them.
0: Jennifer, in in your article, you mentioned a CEO who felt that they had nothing left to give when looking at the scale of the challenges. And I think it probably uh, aligns to what you mentioned about this societal churn and it's all very messy. What was your response or advice to the CEO?
1: So, I mean, collectively, Laura and and, and I, um, you know, this is partly why we wrote the article to remind this individual that it's not all on their shoulders. Um, You might be the CEO, but no leadership is a single person. Um, And so this notion of collective leadership of, you know, asking, listening, creating solutions together, recognizing that nobody can, you know, as these questions reminded us, nobody has all the perspectives of every individual within the organization. Nobody is an expert on all of these issues and they can't possibly be. So part of it is just noticing that you're not supposed to have the answers. I think the other thing is for that individual and many, many senior leaders who have led their organizations through the pandemic. This was, um, you know, people are, you know, we sort of feel like it's a little bit in the rearview mirror, but it's not. People have gone through an extraordinarily disruptive time in their individual lives. Um, as well as collectively. And so I think we're still emerging from that. So I think there still is, There's you're permitted to have a certain amount of post-pandemic exhaustion. We were all on crisis footing and we need to recognize that crisis footing takes something out of you. And if you've held everything together over that time for everyone, for the organization, avoided layoffs, avoided, you know, despite all of these struggles that we had, including really long-term, you know, shifts to supply chains, Um, inflation, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's a lot to give. And so we need to acknowledge that people are people too, leaders are people too, and also that it's not theirs to solve alone. And so that's some of the tips that we give in the article about basically thinking about How can you expand the collective insight that you actually obtain as a leader to understand the issues from other perspectives, the perspectives of your employees, maybe of your supply chain partners, of your middle managers, of your customers? Um, And then how can you actually work within the organization to do what we call containing the emotional uncertainty that comes for all levels of employee? You know, I've seen in the questions already this sort of nervousness around how these technological shifts or the work from home shifts are are influencing us right and what we can do about that and ultimately as we say in that segment people want to be part of an organization that's worth committing to and so again it can feel like a big job for the senior leader but they don't need to do it alone and they should absolutely try to work out who we are who we have been and how are we going forward as a way that of you know despite the technology differences despite Work from home difference. Despite all these differences, what are we still doing and how are we still worthy of people's commitment? And I think organizations that are willing to ask those questions, that are renegotiating those questions, um, are incredibly inspiring. And there are many, many around. There are many ways in which people are rethinking the role of their organization um, in the world today and recrafting how jobs can be performed. And those are the organizations that I think in the long term will really thrive.
0: I think one thing I get a lot from you Jennifer is that you know organizations and companies they they don't exist by themselves they exist within a larger society etc and this maybe goes to Jessica's question which is what about a broader conceptualization of work because there's also mm-hmm. formal she she mentions formal voluntary work but there's also of course housework caring for um children or for uh, your elders how does all this come into the discussion about the future of work?
1: Well, um, Jessica, thank you and thank you Connor. This is a great question and I think it again reminds us, you know, don't want to drag us all back into the pandemic but boy did we recognize the interfaces between home, work and organizational work, formal organizational work. There's a lot of work that goes on in the world. And I think that was a profoundly important time for people who might not have understood those connections and those tensions to be exposed to them firsthand in many ways. Um, Also, as you pointed out, there are many ways that people work throughout their lives. Um we have had these conceptions of people's careers being woven about through a number of experiences, a number of organizational experiences. Um, no longer do we have the world in which, you know, in the 1950s, you'd finish high school, go to work for a company and stay working there through, you know, through your entire career until you retired at retirement age. Um, so we've long since shed that idea that work can just be with one organization or a hierarchy ladder or that kind of thing, I think it is time to shed the idea that work is always with a formal organization that is always long-term or full-time employment. Um, You know, people talk about the gig economy, there's pluses and minuses to all these forms of work, but absolutely we need to acknowledge, I think, the broader ways in which work happens, the roles that work Plays in people's lives and um, what we count as work in thinking about the future of work. Um, I'm reminded about um, about um, the um, uh, someone who wrote one of the original uh, works in the 1970s on the limits to growth, which was sort of one of these early kind of sustainability-oriented uh, pieces of work that basically said, you know, things are changing. Uh, we can't go on forever in this growth 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 mindset he came back and spoke a few years ago at um at cambridge and he was looking at even then all these trends you know this was pre pandemic all these trends in automation trends in what people wanted trends in who they were what their values were and he said you know what actually does the future look like in terms of work? And he said, there will still be work, right? But we may be doing more care work. So healthcare, we look at the aging populations, both formal and informal care work, um, creative work. Uh, We might have more leisure time on our hands. We might fundamentally shift away from the notion that everybody who's working needs to work X number of hours per week for a formal organization, if we have more leisure time on our hands, which most technology shifts haven't actually given us that, even though they might have promised that. But if we do, we'll need a lot of people who are entertaining us, right? The creative industries. So, um, and then, you know, producing all of these amazing technologies that enables all of that for us. So, healthcare probably can't be done actually in the traditional way when we look at the the aging population and the sort of population inversion in many developed countries um actually how we will care for elderly people is a real concern and that will need to be technology enabled so care creativity and uh, research and development was his answer to what work might look like in the future and i think jessica's question opens us up even further to say how does that actually get get delivered and what does that look like in a variety of sectors um, and types of work so thank you I don't have a crystal ball but I think it's a great question we need to all ask ourselves
0: Hmm. Shazep asks about what about um, this tension between work practices and individual productivity and this need by organizations to measure and monitor performance management
1: yeah Yeah, I mean, uh, and as you say, measures should be the key question. Yes, uh, you know, the old adage, what we measure, we manage. Um, Absolutely, we can't just go on gut feel. Um, You know, we can't just trust that people have been putting in the time versus walking their dog all day. On the other hand, I think measurement quickly moves us into this quantitative mindset it moves us away from a systemic and interconnected mindset and so be careful what you measure Um, measuring impact so for example the social impact of organizations is very difficult but it can be done you need to be really really clear on the outcome and the impact that you're trying to achieve rather than just measuring what's convenient Um, so i have another example in another hbr article where i say you know when organizations are trying to measure their social impact i'll come back to individual impact in a moment you know they might measure you know if they're trying to increase gender diversity they might measure the number of women on the board but what they're really trying to do is actually increase the diversity of conversation opinions or or shifts in action right and measuring an input like the number of women on the board isn't Going to necessarily predict that. So coming back to your question, the analogy is, are you measuring, you know, keystrokes, number of hours on teams, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, or are you measuring something that is frankly harder to measure, but more important, which is, what is the productivity of that individual? It's not even the productivity, that's an output, the actual impact is, has that productivity achieved something that is important to the business how does it has it achieved customer retention has it achieved something that's more creative has it and those things are quite hard to measure because they're not necessarily lying with a single individual as we know they might be team oriented they're not necessarily fully into the control you know who knows what great creative new blockbuster. product or service is actually going to hit so I think organizations need to be very mindful of what they're measuring when they're measuring employee productivity performance etc and really try to get sophisticated and maybe long term and maybe multiple metrics quantitative and qualitative that will help us evaluate who the employees are who are really contributing to the business the most Um, and how to create conditions in which they'll thrive. So measurement is a complicated topic as all else, but I think we can think about it in this interconnected way and hopefully more holistic way to make it more meaningful.
0: We have time for one last question. So I'm going to give it to Debasis, but I'm going to reframe his question a bit. And uh, into Jennifer, what do you think, very quickly, top leadership, what are the skills that they need to manage this future of work.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to use a word I've used before, systems, Right, the ability to think in systems, which just means interconnections and interdependency. And with that comes a recognition that we don't control it all. There's going to be inherent uncertainty and ambiguity in how things unfold. Who would have exactly predicted you know, the latest cost of living pri- pri- uh, uh, issues? Um, Who knows what the inflation uh, rate is going to be next year, right? None of us really know that. So the ability to recognize these as interconnected, we need to be comfortable with ambiguity. Therefore, that doesn't mean we don't make choices and lead with an authentic commitment to what we're trying to achieve, but it means that we're nimble. That we're honest with our employees about ambiguity and that we're supporting them in the capacity to think and act in the same way. It might mean that we do more short term experimental types of things and then we jump into things that seem to be working once we've learned more about these interdependencies. So I truly believe there are different ways of leading that support this kind of future. They're not incompatible with the past, but they're evolutions on some of the skills that we might have seen in the past.
0: Great, thank you so much, Jennifer, for uh, giving us this whistle stop tour through the future of work. Um, if people are interested, this is the article that um, Jennifer was mentioning. It's on HBR. In fact, the QR code at the upper right hand corner. Uh, if you zap that, it'll take you straight to the uh, the paper itself. And thank you to our viewers uh, for joining us. The balance sheet will be back first of March, usual time. Uh, we will have David. Watson, who teaches a course on the uh, Cambridge Church Business School Master of Finance and MBA program. And this course won this year's Financial Times Responsible Business Award. So join us then to learn about the purpose of finance. Till then, stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.